Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. From MaximumFun.org and NPR, it's Bullseye. My first guest this week is Nick Kroll, and I think this is his third appearance on our show over the course of many years. It's a hat trick. Nick is a comedian, actor, and writer. He starred on the FX show The League. He created the sketch series Kroll Show. If you watched VH1 a lot in the early 2000s, you probably saw him making jokes about pop culture on Best Week Ever. Nick also co-created the Broadway show Oh Hello, where he and John Mulaney play Gil Faison and George St. Giegland, two men who embody a very specific kind of New Yorker, the kind you might find going through coats at a house party or hosting a $900 acting seminar despite never having acted much. Let's put it this way. They were inspired by two real men who were comparing notes on Alan Alda's autobiography. Who are we really? You know, what is our essence? How to describe? You know when you get to the bottom of a tub of hummus and you can't fit your carrot in there, so you got to use your fingies to scoop it out? Bam, that's us, baby! Lately, though, Nick has focused more on the world of animation. In 2017, he co-created the show Big Mouth on Netflix. It's a hit comedy about puberty, more or less. There's the group of upstate New York teenagers who experience puberty, the hormone monsters who cause puberty, and the friends and family who have to live with those pubescent teens. It's a bit like Pixar's Inside Out, uh, but... I guess it's more like if if Nick Kroll made Pixar's Inside Out. Oh, hey, Olivia. You want to get a drink or something? I think they have LaCroix. It's only the coconut kind, which is a little gross, but it's still kind of... No. Sorry, Dylan. Oh, who? I thought we were going to this dance, like, together. No. 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 Sorry, bro. She wants a real man. Ninth grade. Top of the food chain. Now Nick has a new show in the same universe called Human Resources. It centers around those same monsters and their workplace, along with the adult feelings they represent. It features the voice talents of folks like A.D. Bryant, Rosie Perez, Tandy Newton, Maria Bamford, and many, many more. I mean, it is a murderer's row. And Human Resources, like Big Mouth, is very, very weird and more than a little bit crass. Guys, break room for birthday cake. Shh, he's coming. Come on, Maury, the meeting I told you about, which is very real, is happening here in the break room. I don't know why we'd be having a meeting in the break room, but I do believe you. Happy birthday to you. Shut the up. I don't want a birthday cake. But Maury, it's a cookie cake. Not a regular cake. It's cookie cake. I'll explain. It's basically cookies just mushied into a cake shape. Tyler, if you say the words cookie or cake one more time, I'll mushy you into a dead shape. Ugh. Maury, what the hell? You think that's going to stop me from eating cookie cake? Nick Kroll, welcome back to Bullseye. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. Um, I see that you've expanded your um, you've expanded your empire of our most disgusting and horrible <laughs> feelings 
feelings and bodily functions beyond puberty here. <laughs> You're like, yeah, <laughs> it's a yeah, my empire of dirt, I guess we could call it. <laughs> yes. uh, to quote uh, Nine Inch Nails, uh, uh, I don't know if that is the line. Is it? Yeah. That's not, I don't know. I I know weirdly the Johnny Cash version of it better than I know the. Anyway, uh, yes. Yes, I am. Uh, there are so many more disgusting emotions for us to explore uh, that felt felt necessary to do so. Well, you keep expanding the palette of Big Mouth mm-hmm. with like new characters and new sort of big subjects mm-hmm. of horrible adolescent discomfort. Mm-hmm. And just at a certain point, you're like, "Oh, let's let's get involved in adult shame here." Yes, yeah, I think you know we. We, you know, in Big Mouth, it was, it's always been through the lens of puberty and each, each season just about there's a new character or, or a creature that is anthropomorphizing, whether it's the shame wizard in season two or, uh, Tito, the anxiety mosquito in season, I think in season four, um, and in season five of Big Mouth, we introduced love bugs and hate worms, which are two halves, heads of the same coin. Um, and in doing so, in addition to the other, you know, the hor- the hormone monsters have been there since the beginning. Uh, we realized at the end of season two, we did this um, episode where the kids go up into the what we call where the where the hormone monsters work, and we see their workplace, and and that's where we got a glimpse at the ambition gremlins and DNA apes and all these other characters. Um, and as we continued to develop the show, I think we realized that that world was super rich. And as we build stories for Big Mouth, and it's you know it's a show about kids going through puberty, and and unless the story really has a focus on adolescence or puberty, there are great stories that we've wanted to tell, or stories that are interesting to us that we wanted to tell that just didn't fit inside of that space. So we created Human Resources, which is in the workplace of the monsters and creatures, and it allows us to talk about all the other the myriad of human experiences um, and tell a lot of different kinds of stories that you just can't tell through the lens of, of 13 year old kids going through puberty. Did you already talk to other people about the discomforts of puberty before you started making big mouth? Um, I'm trying to think, you know, I think when my partners, Andrew Goldberg and Mark Levin and Jen Flackett, uh, they approached me with this idea. Andrew Goldberg and I have been friends since childhood, and they approached me with a show about kids going through puberty, and specifically uh, Andrew and I's experience in that. It felt immediately like, oh, yep, that this makes sense. I mean, I had done the first thing I ever did uh, was a book called Bar Mitzvah Disco with with Roger Bennett and Jewel Shell. I think we, I may have spoken to you about that many, yeah, many years ago. Yeah, I think ago. I interviewed about you on that show, and I, I had forgotten completely until this second. Yeah. But I think I interviewed you about that on on my college radio show. I believe so. <laughs> and so so that was, you know, that was the first thing I kind of did almost that official, like, thing that got made. Um, so I've been sort of looking at that period of time of adolescence and and the awkwardness of that time. I guess the majority of my professional career um, – and that time was, I think, as for all of us, very formative. It's foundational going through puberty, and we carry so much of who, what happened to us in that period of time to to the rest of our lives. So it became incredibly important to it's. It was a very important time in my the formation of who I am. Um, and yet now, doing human resources, 
there are just, I mean, it's just like the, the first episode is about a, a woman giving birth um, and not immediately falling in love with her child. Um, our co-creator, so it's me and Andrew and Mark and Jen, and then uh, we brought Kelly Galuska, who's one of the senior f- st- writers on Big Mouth, in, in to write the show, and she just had a baby. She didn't have the feeling of our character in the show of not... But but it's not an uncommon thing to you're you have this baby and then it's thrust on you and whether you're the mother or the father it's like you're it's assumed that you're going to be madly in love with this child that you've never laid eyes on before oftentimes you are but oftentimes there's a lot of other factors that go into birth um, that make it hard to immediately be like oh my god I've never loved anything more and so it felt like an interesting experience to 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 be the first episode of what what's what what that experience is now the other difference between human resources and big mouth is our big mouth is always told from the perspective of the kids and it's then and then these creatures come in as adding perspective for the kids our show uh human resources now really told from the perspective of the creatures and the the humans are are supporting the stories of whatever the creatures are going through. And so in this first episode, you have uh, Emmy, who's a, a love bug voiced by A.D. Bryant, and Emmy is being promoted. So it's like, what's, it's really a story about someone who's got a, a job, who's going basically transitioning from an assistant to a a, sing, a, a non-assistant role. And it's it's about her learning how to be better at her job. And then we use this story of, of a woman giving birth and, and what's it like for a love bug to try to convince this person you need to love this child right away. The question, Nick, was, do you actually talk to other, did you actually <laughs> talk to other people about the horrors of adolescence before it was your job? Thank you for keeping me on message. Um, I did. I talked to a lot of people. We talked about it in the room, obviously with other writers. We talked about it with kids. Um, we, we would, um, we had, we've had a number of, at the time, now it feels weird saying Skypes, uh, now that we live in a, a post Skype zoom world, but we would Skype with, a uh, this woman, uh, sex education expert, uh, Shafia Zaloom up in the, up in the, the Bay area and her students, uh, and we would talk to them about stuff around puberty and adolescence as, as opposed to just like nostalgically looking back like you and I or with other writers. It, we were definitely – it was important. <laughs> I have a lot of fond nostalgia for yeah, – Sure. Wondering why there were lumps in my breasts. Yeah. That naughty, happened to me. Naughty, I was – what? In your nipples or in your you, breasts? Like in my nipples. Yeah. yeah. I was – I had my eyes out. My mom told me that that was a secondary sex characteristic. And I was a late bloomer, and so I was looking for the boys with nip engorged nipples because I was like <laughs> there going through puberty, and I was like waiting for my nipples to be knotted. It's <laughs> horrible. Yeah, this is, do I have cancer? I yeah. thought to myself, and I had full your body's changing education. Just never mentioned that one. No, it's a weird one. They don't really throw out there to you. So much more to get into with Nick Kroll. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Nick Kroll. Nick is an actor and comedian. He created the sketch comedy series Kroll Show on Comedy Central. He and his friend John Mulaney created the Broadway show Oh Hello. Lately, Kroll has been doing a lot of animation work. He co-created the show Big Mouth on Netflix, which is a show about puberty and the literalized monsters who cause it. His newest show just premiered. It's a spinoff of that show called Human Resources. 
It's out now on Netflix. Let's get back into our conversation. So the first time I interviewed you was 20 years ago, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And 2005, I think we put the book out. Yeah. Something like that. And uh, in that time, I have seen the kinds of the kinds of comedy that you have done change a lot. Um, you know, you rose to prominence uh, doing like big, broad characters mm -hmm. with silly voices mm -hmm. that were often like a guy you saw in the subway mm -hmm. who and heard him say a sentence and thought like, well, what if I talked in that funny voice? Yes. Um, they were very far from you. They were not always dudes. Mm -hmm. They were, you were often performing transracially. Mm -hmm. Like it was the biggest, furthest things from you you could get a hold of mm -hmm. and making them insane. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, Big Mouth is a change from that, mm -hmm. but it's still very retrospective. Mm -hmm. And in human resources, you actually maybe have to engage with the person that you are. <laughs> Yeah, um, <laughs> sure. Is that a little scary? Um, I've had a lot of practice now working on Big Mouth and then now doing a lot more stand-up. I've been torn, I'm really inspired by the more autobiographical elements of Big Mouth and to learn to be more personally vulnerable and personally self-revealing um, that stand-up, my stand-up has started to reflect that more than when you started interviewing me and I was much more comfortable on stage. I mean, I think I had access to being on stage more than I then had access to being, making videos and then making like Kroll Show, uh, broad characters, which I loved playing. And I, I, I don't know, I want to say that it was more, it's a personal evolution versus uh, uh, the realities of culture shifting where there are many characters that I would do 10 years ago to, that I would never do today um, that are, I'm like, that that I think, you know, for for many reasons. Um, and, and I think as culture evolves and, and where we are with comedy right now, and I think, but I think more of that has been like, as you're, as you're saying, it's more been a reflection of me being like, uh, it was scary to reveal myself for many years and it's more, it was fun to do these characters, but over time it's been like, no, I think well, ultimately I got to start talking about myself and my experience and try to find what's interesting about that. And, 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 and it happens to have coincided with a thing where it's been, it's, it's more complicated for me as like a straight cis hetero white male to play characters that are very far away from what my experience has been. Um, animation has been a, a, a beautiful transitional place for me to do that because I, you know, Big Mouth has been, is Nick is a loosely autobiographical. And then the characters that I play around that are characters that I can sort of jump into and that aren't, that are not myself, but so, some extension to myself in some way. Um, and so that that's been a wonderful way to do that, you know. Um, I, I think it's a personal evolution. I don't know if, how many comedians work this way or not, but I but I definitely think it's been very rewarding and valuable for me personally, just in my own let's call it artistic journey to <laughs> to be like, oh, I guess I should explore my myself. <laughs> And not just in, hopefully not in a narcissistic way, but in like a way that's like, you know, it's, if I'm going to be able to play this character that's completely different than me, I should be able to talk and make fun of myself in the same way.
Do you think you were worried about how people would receive you, you, when you started? No, I think it's a little, at least for me, it was always safer to be like this person that I have a broad sketch of that I saw on the subway or that I listened to on the radio or that I like dealt with at a, you know, in a publicity like junket. It was easier to be like, oh, oh, well, this like, you know, like what was publicity Liz then becomes Lola. It's like, oh, this woman who like sips her smoothies out of a big sippy cup and like, you know, uh, has a partner that whatever it's like I can draw a, a very quick and broad sketch about that person and and have a quick beat on what I think their perspective on the world is when it came to myself it was like well I don't know what my perspective on the world is because I know every single element to my own personality to make it harder to boil that personality down to a digestible like thumbnail or soundbite like it is when you're playing a broad character um and and then there's also just the feeling of like the fear of 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 revealing your vulnerabilities and like what is that you know it's it's a at least for me i mean i think everyone's different i think every but there are plenty of stand-ups who are like no i have my perspective on the world that's what i want to share with the world for me, I was like, I don't think I know if I care about my perspective. I don't know if people will care about my perspective or I've wanted to keep that private. I've wanted to keep myself separate. I wanted to keep like a distance between Nick Kroll, the human being, and, and Nick Kroll, the artist. And I don't want to let the public, an audience into my personal, that's, it's, it's protective. It's protective. I mean, I think that, um, I think especially in stand-up, which you've done tons of, both including and not including character mm -hmm. work. Um, there is this thing that you, you know, if you're going to play clubs especially, you have to kind of identify who you are and what kind of thing you are going to be presenting mm. within 10 seconds of getting on stage. The classic, I know what you're thinking, so-and-so and such-and-such -and -such had a baby yeah. opening line, right? Yeah. You need to give the audience a context for them to receive you. Mm -hmm. And um, I think when your identity categories include straight white dude, you're Jewish, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, uh, Judaism, a category of whiteness in the United States. Sure. Um, so straight white dude, affluent background, mm -hmm. like you're, you're walking on stage with something that is indistinctive unless you're going to do rich guy jokes mm -hmm. indistinctive mm -hmm. to the audience mm -hmm. and also like completely uh you know completely hegemonic so like something that people are are if anything going to resent a little mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what i yeah. mean well and so i think a lot of people who are in that position get really good at doing something that is either uh, universal or something that is abstract mm -hmm. because it's it's hard for them to figure out how to put over their own specifics because maybe they don't even because they're not so different they don't think of their own difference mm -hmm. because they're not so different from power they don't think of their own difference yeah I mean I don't think I was thinking for sure was not thinking about that when I started and I think it's only in the last few years that like the indistinguishableness of like white straight male vibes like th none no straight white men were thinking about that in comedy five even five years ago of being like wait my i am indistinguishable and there that is a 
that is not a win for me. Like, I just don't think we, nobody was thinking about that. It was, you know, I think I was protecting a little bit of like coming from privilege for sure. I was not like, let me focus on this, except, you know, on Kroll shows, like there's one of the main tent poles was like rich, you know what I mean? I was like, I'm not hiding. Do you watch one interview and I'll tell you where I came from. You know what I mean? But I also was like, I don't think that's terribly relatable. Um, so my standup now has become, but my standup has now become more of like, here's, you know, I'm like interested in birth order. Like, where do you fall in your birth order? I think that's, I, I had that experience. Everyone has experience, whether you're straight or trans or Mexican or Jewish or, you know, Persian. It doesn't matter. Everybody has birth order. Everybody's dealing with that. Here's my, here's my way into that. I hope you can join me in that, in that journey. I, I had a child. What's, here's my way into that. Like y- you were a child, you had, you're having a child, you're dating someone. Like I had my heart broken, like all that stuff. Like, I think that's the key as artists is like, how do we find our way in to that is specifically our experience, but hopefully in fine in, in our specificity that, that I'm finding some universality for people to, to attach their experience to, 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 to connect to to what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I was thinking of uh, John Mulaney, with whom you've worked for decades. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I, the first time I saw Mulaney was uh, in New York at a club called Comics. Sure. It doesn't exist with an anymore. You yeah, with an X. Funny. Um, in the Meatpacking District, which booked a lot of great comics for yes. being a com- club called Comics with an X in the sure. Meatpacking District. And um, maybe why they're not open anymore. Yeah. Uh, but I saw, I saw Mulaney do a, a headlining set, and it was some of the best jokes I had ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. He was 24 years old or 25 yep. years old. Some of the best jokes I'd ever seen in my life, and perhaps the most abstract stand-up comedy set I'd ever seen. Like, mm. truly just doing jokes. Mm-hmm. Not, not like, in the sense of, you know, not like uh, Stephen Wright, not like jokes um, in that form, but like... Here's some big, diffuse ideas with some really perfect specifics yes. and really, like, not about him particularly at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you watch a special that he put out three, four years ago, uh, it is the same perfect jokes, but it's very much about him. Yeah. Um, and, you know, very much about his, who he is in the world, mm-hmm. which, you know, takes some time to... Take some time to get to. Yeah. Some people are great at it right off the bat. Some people, and I don't know if everyone ends up there, but I think people are, and I don't know if it's a function of how culture works now, of whether, you know, with podcasts, with, there's so many forms of personal revelation for people, but I think audiences are, audiences are, do crave that intimacy and i think artists are trying to figure out how to like bring intimate intimacy and and relevance to what they're saying and and i and i think that oftentimes comes with very personalized material um in a way that you know and and i don't know if that's like the natural evolution of a stand-up or an artist comedian or if it's just like or if that's just like where we are going generally culturally or not I don't know. Do you think that the fact that uh, you grew up with a dad who, you know, founded a 
private intelligence firm that became a huge, huge thing uh, that eventually sold for one point something billion dollars mm-hmm. or something uh, made you hyper aware of the relationship between the like public narrative of your life and the private narrative of your life and the artistic narrative of your life? Yeah. I mean, I think I grew up, I think because my dad did something very specific that wasn't like he's a lawyer or he's in finance or like, or a doctor, like I grew up in a, you know, affluent upper middle-class area, but even from the beginning, my dad always did something that was interesting and different. It was like, you know, I would say like, my dad is a private investigator. He doesn't wear a trench coat. He doesn't carry a gun. Like what everyone thought of as a PI. He's more of an encyclopedia Brown type. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was slightly aware he was known uh, in certain circles. And so I understood that there was like, it wasn't famous, like someone who's like, you know, like, Kate Hudson being like, you know, Goldie Hawn being her mother. It wasn't like that at all. But there was, it wasn't just like, oh, he's a standard upper middle class businessman. Nor did, nor did that when he sold, you know, I was an adult when he sold the company. I think I was very conscious of, I was conscious of like being from, you know, having a parent or both my parents were like in our community well known. Um, so I was aware of that. And I was aware of that, like, there's things that are public and things that are private, um, that you can be known in the community. And then you also have your, like, the the way your family works and the way that things that are discussed in the house that aren't discussed out into the world. And we all have that on various levels, maybe not because of some specific specificity to, like, your, your parents' occupation. So I was aware of that. And I think early on, there was a lot of me being protective of myself and and where I came from because I was either trying to not be caught up in in like the narrative of who my family was or who my dad was or is. Um, and also, and I still have that, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, and, and wanting to be like, well, I made this on my own. You know what I mean? Of course I, of course I benefit from the privilege of my family and the, the, the benefits that I had of, of being like, I'm going to do comedy and if it doesn't work, I'll be okay. That's a massive benefit, which I'm well aware of. But I also think like, you know, that doesn't mean that I was then like, if like, if I, if I couldn't make a group of people in a room laugh, then I wasn't going to be a comedian, you know? Um, but I found myself protective of whether protective of it because I because I was felt my family and my background felt private to me or because I was like this is completely unrelatable to 99% of the people of my audience like this is not going to be relatable for me to talk about my experience what was something that your that happened in your family that was like a private narrative and not a public narrative that you want me to now share publicly. <laughs> if there's something I was about to add, if there's something that you yeah. would feel comfortable sharing with the, Oh, of time. I mean, I mean, the truth is I just didn't, we, there was very limited amount talked about of what my father did professionally because it was built around discretion, and- discretion. So it was like my, he he was hired to investigate the Kuwaiti government hired him to investigate where Saddam Hussein was hiding his money during the first Gulf war. I was like 13. 
and I was 13, so what do you know about anything that your parents are doing at 13? But it was like, that's what we knew. And there was like a cop stationed outside of our house for a while during that period of time. There was not much more discussion beyond that. I I wasn't like, so dad, let's let's talk about the Swiss bank accounts where Saddam is, the shell company is hiding X, Y, and Z. Or is it like, you know, so you're flying to Kuwait right now? You know, like there just wasn't a ton of discussion around that, you know, and, and um, for everyone's sake, you know. Um, but I think it also led me to be someone who's like, for the, I think for the most part, if you tell me something in confidence, like, yeah, nobody else is going to hear about it, you know, because it's like you told me that in confidence. Did you ever tag along like Veronica Mars and her dad? <laughs> no, I I would go on a business trip with them every once in a while. I went, I mean, I remember, but like it was like to go to Dallas, and you know, it was not very exciting. It's every boy's dream to go to Dallas. <laughs> yeah, I was a Cowboys fan, so it was, it was that was fun. <laughs> Um, Boy, was I crushed when I found out Fort Worth wasn't Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wrap up with Nick Kroll after a quick break. We'll be back in a minute. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm a psychic. My name is Psychic Carrie. I'm yes. Ross. Oh, what a pleasure to meet you. Of course, I knew your name was Ross, as I am a psychic. But please, take a yeah. seat. Well, I was hoping we, we, hoping could, talk we could talk about my, my podcast. podcast. Yes, I know. It's called Oh No, Ross and Carrie. Yes. We investigate from uh-huh. science, spirituality, yeah. and claims of the paranormal. paranormal. You, you took the words right out of my mouth. Yes. This whole podcast, it sounds like it's been a real challenge for you lately. Actually, it's a lot of fun. Yes, exactly. Because it's so fun. I don't know how you do it. This will be $75. Okay, that seems fair. Oh no, Ross and Carrie. At MaximumFun.org. You knew it was a .org. I have a gift. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Nick Kroll. When you started like having your own television show and stuff, Mm -hmm. Um, which is, you know, at, at this point, 10-ish years ago, something yeah, like that. Yeah, literally almost 10 years ago. Um, did you think about uh, what it would mean for you to be a celebrity? Um, you know, I've been, I've had such a... And Nick, I don't want to suggest that you were like, well, I'm Jennifer Aniston now. Sure, sure. Uh, I'm going to be, my celebrity narrative is going to be the top one of sure, the world. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but just that you were not going to be somebody that people like uh, recognized because they saw you at Rafifi in New York. Right, 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 right. My my trajectory as a comedian and they uh, also love the 90s. They, yeah, oh, my God. I mean, that's the thing is like, you know, I, I moved my New Year's resolution. I mean, almost to the day right now, my New Year's resolution going into 2002 was to do an open mic. I got the I got the the uh, the cojones to get up and do it, I think, at the end of January, beginning of February. So this is like I did my first open mic about 20 years ago uh, to the day. And then I, within like a year or two, was like on awesomely bad 70s songs on VH1. And then I booked commercials and then I got on, you know, Best Week Ever by 2004, 2005. And then I was, 
you know, popping up in other things and probably was in my first movie in 2006 or seven and then was on Caveman. You know, so it's like, it's been such a gradual, my sort of trajectory as a public person um, has been so incremental and gradual. I had a point when I was like doing Kroll Show and was on the league and was dating someone who was like a public personality where I was like, oh, this is weird. Like, oh, oh, I now understand the other side of this where you're like, oh, this is like this thing that I had been, because you've interviewed a lot of well-known people. Every Any of them who say like, I got into this because I just wanted to do comedy. I didn't want to be famous. They're lying to you a little bit. Maybe 5% of the famous people that you have talked to didn't realize that they were going to be famous, that that wasn't part of the goal. I might be weirdly going out of limb here, but they're lying to you. But I mean, at the very least, they're aware that fame is the currency they can they can gain that will allow them to make the things that they want to make. Yeah, and 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 I and I believe many of them by the time you talk to them don't want to be famous anymore. They they got in they wanted to do but like part of the motivating factor of being a performer, a musician, an actor, comedian, a writer, a podcaster is for other people to be like I know you and I like what you do. There are the occasional people who are like, I am a true artist who has no sense of my audience. I just want to create things. And then they become like massively successful. And they're like, boy, I had no idea that this was going to be the end goal of it. But almost to a person, I guarantee somewhere in them wants to be recognized for their work. Then it happens. Or to affect others. I yes. Mean, yeah. Yes. And I and I, I mean, I'm saying it in the most cynical version right. of it. But but once you get that, you realize there are incredibly tricky elements to all of that, you know, um, and it's it's not a it's not all fun and games, um, but it also is. It's wonderful. But it is. I hit a point around then when I was finishing Kroll Show. I, I was on two shows, and and it was like I was like, oh, this is this is not everything it was cracked up to be, which then. Like I put everything to bed. I was physically, emotionally exhausted, creatively exhausted, put everything to bed. And me and and John started doing Oh Hello to do get towards eventually doing the Broadway show. And and that's when a big mouth came around and it was animation. And it was like, oh, I'm more than happy to not be on camera shooting a show like nine or ten months of the year and not be not have my face on TV much of the time. Um I definitely was more than happy to to take that. You have a kid who's about a year old. Mm-hmm. Um, how has the experience been different than you expected? Hmm. I grew up, I have three siblings. They all have four kids. So I have 12 nieces and nephews. I'm in my 40s. I know all my, so many of my friends. Have, so I've witnessed and been very close to people who have kids. So I was aware of, everything that was going to happen for the most part. Um, I think it's that what you can't quite explain or experience until you have your own children is the familiarity, what used to be only internal familiarity, to see that familiarity 
externalized, where you see another creature, another human being say something or or not say, I mean, he's still one. When you see another creature like smile in a way that you've only understood internally before, to see that external is is a real trip, um, which I guess might be somewhat narcissistic uh, to say, be like, I saw someone else do something just like me, <laughs> uh, which is not my point. I think it's, uh, it's a different kind of love, truthfully, is like you don't, you know it's going to be that, you know it's going to be that you're going to experience a new kind of love. And then you have the child and you're like, yeah, yep. I've never, it confirms what I thought, but then I've never felt this way before, which is like, you love something so um, different than like when you choose your partner who you love because you're like, oh, I found my my wife, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, whatever. There's something about having a child where it's just like this, uh, this it's prime. It's like a primordial love that I have not experienced before. Well, Nick, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It's, it's always great to get to talk to you. Always a pleasure talking to you, Jesse. Nick Kroll. His animated show, Human Resources, just premiered on Netflix. Go check it out there. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. You know... And another one of those weird windstorms here in Los Angeles. Common occurrence here in Los Angeles. And this giant eucalyptus tree right outside my office window lost a few more giant branches. It's terrifying. This tree's going to fall over and crush my house. Better knock on wood. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio, Valerie Moffat, and Richard Roby. Did I just speak that tree thing into existence? I hope not. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by the Go Team. Thanks to the Go Team and to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us there. Follow us there. We will share with you our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.